Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, Palette Exposure here with Adam Lee, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. You guys might know him from his brand called Siduri, which was started all the way back in 1994 and won numerous accolades with trade and public. He really is considered in the industry the Pinot Whisperer. And um, that was sold recently um, to Kendall Jackson, I believe. Is that right? Um, and uh, he has his own brand. That's called Clarice. That has a very special backstory that I love. Everybody that has a grandma is going to love it. And a couple other projects uh, that are more recent that I'm super curious about. He really is a hero to many people, you guys, including me. Um, he is extremely honest and authentic um, in everything that he does, which is why I've admired him all these years. And now I get to talk to him and you guys get to listen in. Super excited. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That level of honesty gets me in trouble every now and then, but it makes for a good interview, hopefully. So this will be fun. <laughs> oh, this is going to be great. No doubt about it. Um, so you're from Texas originally. Is that accurate? That is correct. Born and raised in Austin. Some people would say Austin's not typical Texas, but it's, it is Texas nonetheless. So yes. Yes. Austin is often compared to San Francisco for a whole lot of reasons. It's got How its own like growing up? Tell us about Oh, yes. well, which was interesting. Yeah, I um, was born and raised in Austin, but I was born and raised uh, by two very uh, older, I was I, actually, I was adopted by them, older Southern Baptist parents. And so I grew up pretty conservatively. Um, my dad worked for the state government. Uh, he worked with people like John Connolly and LBJ. So he was kind of a lifelong Southern Democrat uh, from a, a political point of view. Although he, working for the state government, he could never share his own politics with people. That was something that was very forbidden at the time. So wow. but he was head of Texas Parks and Wildlife and Texas Coastal and Marine Council. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, we, I was an only child and uh, never drank at all related to wine until I ended up going away to college down in San Antonio. So, and that uh -huh. was my first exposure to alcohol and really not even to wine for a while. It was more... You know, when you're in college, drinking fine wine probably is not highest on your, <laughs> your uh, the, the priority list. It's whatever got you there cheaper and faster at the time. So more tequila and rum back those days. Those are pretty motivating. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and so it was not until really my junior year in college, I was going to this small school called Trinity University in San Antonio, that I started dating a girl that um, her family had some background in wine. And I remember we went out uh, in background in wine. They drank fine wine. They knew fine wine, that kind of thing. So we went out to uh, one uh, night. I remember she took me to a, a sorority formal and we went out to dinner beforehand and she ordered a nice bottle of wine. And I, it's still to this mind. And it, I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was a nicer bottle. And I'm like, wow, okay, this is something special. So after she graduated, she moved out to Northern California and got a job out in Walnut Creek area. She worked for Chevron uh, in Concord. And I spent the summer between my junior and senior year um, out in the wine country with her. And we would go wine tasting, thought we knew something about wine because we liked Mandavi White Zen better than we liked Sutter Home White Zen. 
Hey, uh, don't knock the great gateway wine. <laughs> no, no, I'm not knocking it at all. I'm, just, oh, no, I'm, just, I'm teasing, of course. That's where we were, you know, in, in yeah. Chateau Saint-Michel Riesling at Stern Grove in San Francisco. You know, you take yeah. that to the park. Uh, but we discovered this one place that we love to picnic, and it was gorgeous uh, picnic table overlooking vineyards and the river, and it was the first red wine I ever cared for. I just remember really, really liking it. And it turned out it was the 84 Rocchioli Pinot Noir. Oh, my and, Lord. Yes. Yeah. You, you happen upon one of the greatest. Uh, yeah, completely. I mean, just by pure chance. And it was, um, it was easy to be in love with that wine because, you know, this was first love of my life kind of thing. And everything just seemed yeah. perfect and special at the time. But the wine uh, was started my lifelong love and relationship with Pinot Noir. And even though that, that girl, Sandy, and I didn't work out, the, the wine relationship did. So I went back to college, graduated, I graduated with a useless degree in French history, specialized in the comparative history of the French and American prison systems. And that did not lead to a job. Yeah, I was going to get a PhD and teach at some point in time. But I took a year off and got a job in a wine store. And that was kind of the beginning for me. So first of all, I want to give a shout out to Sandy. Yes. Um, it's just so great that it worked out the way it has, uh, that you wound up in the East Bay, which is, you know, my hood, so I know it well. Um, and it kind of opened the doors to the wine countries and led you to Rocchioli, because without it, who knows what would have happened. So thank you, Sandy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Don't you think it's important to give shout outs to people in your past sometimes that yeah. you realize you wouldn't have gotten where you are without that? No, it's like, it's sort of this concept of open doors. It's an old, you know, um, movie that really talks about what happens if this door opens at that moment of time, right? As yes. opposed to all of a sudden you're not being there at that moment, then all of a sudden it's diverted and you're in a completely different pathway. So it's those moments that you can actually pinpoint and identify that I think make the landscape of our human experience. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun to go back and say, hey, that's when it began. Yeah. So um, we're all grateful. I know all the wine lovers and specifically Pinot lovers. I'm feeling it right now. I certainly am. Um, so there you are in the wine story, in the wine store. <laughs> as your story unfolds um, and you're selling wine. What was that like? Um, it was a, a wonderful experience. I still have friends for that, uh, very good friends that I met at that wine store. Uh, I got hired as the assistant manager. It was one of three stores um, and called Austin Wine and Spirits. And um, it was, they were some of the top wine stores in Austin at the time, maybe in Texas at the time. Wow. We brought in uh, the wines of Bobby Ketcher, uh, Burgundy's, Terry Thies German wines, Marco de Grazia Italian wines. Uh, at that time, 84 and 85 California cabs were coming out, 85 and 86 Bordeaux. And, and even things like First Gross were affordable at that time or not ridiculous. That's hard to picture. Yes. And 85, by the way, you guys, was really an extraordinary vintage in California, wasn't it? First time point Niels Vengi wine was produced that Roth year. Roth Reserve, yeah. 85 right. Roth Reserve cab, yes. Um, so, good and time. 85 and 86 Bordeaux were great wines. I mean, there were just a number of opportunities and things that I got to taste. So I moved up 
quickly from assistant manager to manager of the store, and then ultimately became president of the company and ran the, the three stores. But in addition to that, I worked uh, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, along with a couple of other guys at the store. We would work at this restaurant on the floor um, selling wine in exchange for free dinners on Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because we didn't have an awful lot of money. But if you could have a free dinner and get to take a, a date out to this restaurant and they would kind of kiss your ass and make it seem like it was a special evening. <laughs> um, that was fantastic. I remember um, one time I was going out on a date with a girl named Susie and I took the 85 Chateau Margaux on a date. Oh, and my Lord. Yeah, it was the 85s were pretty forward and then they shut down like a year after they were released. But right off the bat, they were drinking pretty well. And Susie and I ended up going out for a year or so after that. And every time we'd go out to dinner, we'd, we'd have a nice bottle of wine. She'd be like, oh, this is a nice wine, but it doesn't taste quite like that 85 Chateau Margot. <laughs> I'm like, You're yeah, in her. yeah completely and totally. It was it was done. What a, what a great exposure for you, like to all kinds of wines, because you were tasting a tremendous amount running those shops. So your palate was really just being trained at the high level at this point. It was. And the thing that happened, too, is that as I moved up a little bit, they started giving me some responsibility. And I talked to them about Rocchioli. And they're like, we, we're not familiar with it. So we became the biggest seller of Rocchioli wines, Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc, in the country. Um, we, I went out there and we ended up bringing in Tom Rocchioli told me, go down the street and meet these two guys named Bert and Ed. Um, you should get some of their wine. So we ended up bringing William Selliam in, um, I went over to El Molino and got Reg's stuff to come into Texas. Um, got, uh, Kent Rasmussen's stuff. Um, so I kind of became this Pinot guy in the company and we became just this huge seller of California Pinot at a time when... Um, California Pinot wasn't really on a lot of people's radar, but I think it was with the William Selliams, with uh, the Gary Farrells, uh, uh, the, the, uh, certainly with Rocchioli and El Molino and Kent Rasmussen, uh, and then you go down south with Jim Clendenin and people like that. We became the place that we would specialize in California Pinot Noir from, from, I mean, we had a whole world of wine, but that was something that we were introducing people to at that time. You know, I think with all the, you know, onslaughts, you know, this massive wave of Pinot um, that happened, you know, predominantly post sideways, people forget that there was a Pinot culture that was very prominent and very meaningful way before that. And I, for one, has have goosebumps. I was on Rocchioli mailing list very early on, like 20 years ago. So I know what you're talking about exactly. I couldn't get enough, literally. They wouldn't allocate me enough bottles I, I would blow through them, even though technically I probably should be putting them away, but some of them were made in minuscule quantities, like literally 50, 75 cases. Yeah. I am so bloody impressed right now that they allocated you the wine, number one, that says volumes, that speaks like so much about how, the relationship that you forged and how much they appreciated you and what you did for them in the Texas market in terms of exposure to this phenomenal brand. And being right at the helm of William Selliam, I actually had a chat with Bob Cabral. Yep. Much respect. Um, amazing. They really established a, a, the voice for the varietal in California and what it can deliver. I agree. I think um, people like William Selliam and Rocchioli made us realize, you know, th th there was a time before that that there were the, really the people that, that, that 
set the table that were really the groundbreakers, people prior to me really getting into it, but Joe Swan. I mean, I know Rod yes. now, but 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 Joe Swan, Henzel, um, yep. there were a number of people like that that really were um, at the very beginning of things. Uh, Richard Sanford, what, first vintage was 70-something or other, you know, down south. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And the Bokley Ma too, Clendenin, was the first yeah. one that, you know, adapted this Barganian model that everybody talks about now. And Martin Ray, Martin Ray, yeah, I mean, there you go. but those are the people who started the whole thing. Um, the next generation, but they, but they almost seem like anomalies, like, okay, they could do it, but no one else could do it. Or this, they, they were. And Josh Jensen, Calera, that's another. Josh yeah. was, Josh was there. Um, I remember uh, reading a quote from Andrei Chelichev saying that the night, I think it was the 1946 Pinot that he made at BV was fantastic. He never knew how he did it and could never replicate it again. But, you know, I mean, here's the master of Cabernet saying he, he did that. Um, Richard Peterson uh, as well. Um, there were people like that that really were, um, but, but they seemed like an anomaly. They were the ones that really broke ground, but they seemed like an anomaly. It was Bert and Ed that really said, hey, this can be done consistently. It can't, it's not just once, it can be done at an incredibly high level, at a world-class level on a consistent basis in California. And so then that whole group of people like Tom Rocchioli, uh, the Dellingers, other people came along at that time. Uh, and there was really kind of that growth in spurt of Pinot Noir at that moment. And they made wines that lasted. That's another thing that I think is, is worth highlighting is that their wines, you know, in some cases were probably easy 20, 30 year Pinot Noirs. Yes. Not something that's necessarily leaping to mind when a lot of people know the current iteration of a lot of California Pinot Noirs. But those were extraordinary, you know, and, you know, just the breadth and range of the wines, if you had a chance to taste them, and if not, I mean, I strongly recommend like scour the auctions. If you can yep. find any older California Pinot Noirs, buy them. It is such a revelation. No, it is. It's it's remarkable um, to try some of those those William Sellian wines and even some of the others. The thing, obviously, that you have to pay attention to on that is storage. Uh, you know, some people. I mean, we were all fairly naive in some ways. I mean, not the whole wine world was, but many, many of us were, and you didn't keep, always have the, you didn't have the small little cellar you can just go to Home Depot and buy right now kind of thing. You did, that wasn't available in the same way. Absolutely. No, that's very, very noteworthy. So you guys, there's some practical takeaway. I know I'm probably going to be logging on some auction sites after this conversation, very inspired by this. So I really want to point out how special your background is. Um, you know, a lot of people start, you know, in the wine business, whether they come from the outside or maybe, you know, directly, you know, on the winemaking side from UC Davis, wine becomes their world or it's just a centerpiece, right? And it's the practical pieces of it. But many haven't really had the opportunity to sell it, to market it, to taste worldwide, which is what you were doing. And yeah. I think that's so seminal that you came at it from a very practical perspective. Um, I, I agree. I think it made a huge difference. I also, I ended up leaving that wine store and got into wine wholesale briefly. And I was not very good at it because I was not, I should have been more financially motivated than I was, but I would, you know, carry a bag of six wines around trying to go to retailers or restaurateurs. And I'd come see you in the morning and, um, 
we drink half of the bottles and then I go see one account in the afternoon and we drink the other half of the bottles. And I only saw two accounts in a day and you don't make a lot of money in wholesale only seeing two accounts a day. <laughs> but I did really well at your store and I did really well at the other store kind of thing. But, but it was more of the love of wine aspect where it's like, you won't believe what I got in my bag today. And I bring it over to you and we sit there and we taste this stuff and are like, this is fantastic. Um, and so that's really where, but I even think that experience with wholesale, even though it, for me it was a failed experience in some ways, mm -hmm. but that time uh, taught me so much about what it's like to be on the road as a salesperson. And I like my keys in the car twice. We don't have to do this now, but I remember pouring down rain and it was back in pager days. You didn't have like cell phones. So, you know, I'm running with quarters over to a payphone. <laughs> And right as I get to the payphone, I'm like, oh, crap, I left my keys in the car and the door's locked and it's pouring down rain. And, you know, it just was not, um, I don't know, it was not my favorite experience, but I learned a lot about what it's like to be out there wholesale selling wine, too. Absolutely. And it's really the process. You know, I'm big on that as opposed to just necessarily the reward. Just yep. having this one-on-one -on -one experience with people in the trenches, I think it gave you so much appreciation when you became a vintner, what it's like on the other side with boots on the ground. Yeah. It just balances the perspective so much. Well, when I'm out selling wine right now, with, riding along with a salesperson, I grab the bag and start pulling it and they're like, no, no, no. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I used to do this. That's part of the deal. And, you know, pulling a bag through a, like if I'm selling in Vegas through a heavy carpet someplace, you know, early in the day, it's harder because the bag weighs more later in the day, the wines are lower, it's easier. I mean, you just learn little weird nuances like that, but it's all part of the whole experience. That was in the details. I, I bet you that endeared you to a lot of people that remember how you picked up the bag and not yeah. were like some, you know, prima donna that's supposed to be treated with velvet gloves, that you actually were there with them. I think that's so memorable. And the fact that, you know, your wines ended up being so spectacular anyway, they sold themselves, but that first, you know, introduction to somebody that doesn't know your portfolio and having that person next to you saying, this, this guy's cool, he's amazing. And he is a human. Sure, I often always thought that the two things that I have learned a bit is selling wine, which say the winemaking thing didn't work out. You can sell wine. There's still a job there. And as far as winemaking goes, I learned how to drive a forklift. So if everything <laughs> goes to crap, I can jump on a forklift and get a job someplace here or there. There's some real practical things that come about in wine that's okay. It's almost like learning in, I mean, I liberal arts major and I joke about my degree being useless, but I learned how to learn. And I think that's incredibly important just pause this for a moment learn how to learn is that a teachable moment or what you're a teacher even though you're not teacher by profession you're teaching people by virtue of who you are and by life example you're the proof of concept yeah i i think these days there are many many people who say that you know it, what is the value of an education we should have very practical educations and i don't have problems with that there are certain things trade schools and and schools, very specific schools that if you need to study to be this, to be that, but many of us didn't know what we wanted to do. But if I manage to acquire the tools that allow me ultimately to get in the wine business, acquire someone else the tools to do something else, then um, that's huge. I know that you're regarded 
in the winemaking community as a great mentor to many. I mean, I've heard that from a variety of sources. You're just, you, you're such a sage and you guys have now heard why. You have this life wisdom that arguably is the most important one of, of all. Um, so thank you for that. Um, there you are. We, we paused when you were actually on the precipice of coming to California, right? Is that yeah. the timeline? So yeah, it was. I was looking at California. I had moved up to Dallas. I was in wine wholesale briefly. And um, I was one of the places I was calling on was Neiman Marcus. And Neiman's had a wine department at the time. In fact, six stores had wine departments and uh, around the country. And they needed a new wine buyer or an additional wine buyer. So I became the wine buyer for Neiman Marcus. Nice. Uh, and that's where I met Diana. Uh, who we started Sideri together, um, got married and started Sideri. And that's, um, she was in the Epicure department. So she was doing food, I was doing wine, and it seemed like a- Marriage. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It was a good match for us at the time. She uh, jokingly says um, that we went out with each other, or she went out with me because um, I had good wine and because I was the only straight guy that worked at Neiman Marcus. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that increased my chances with her tremendously. So, um, and Neiman's was an odd place to sell wine. Wonderful, but odd. Uh, it was a place where you would have no sales in one day. And then I remember a customer that came in one time who was a big Bordeaux customer. And he said, Adam, I've heard that the um, 88, 89 and 90 vintages in Burgundy are three amazing years. And I had been fortunate to taste some of them. And I'm like, yeah, these are fantastic. He's like, could you pull together Thirty to forty thousand dollars worth of wine for me, because um, I'd like to add them to my cellar. And so things like that could happen. You know, you had nothing that sold one day, and then, boom, thirty grand worth of Burgundy. Amazing. Um, yeah. Very heady. Uh, uh, it was. It was pretty wild. Um, but it was also where again I made some great friendships, had some different experiences. Neiman's was a great place to learn that you. Um, treat everybody with respect. You treat everybody. Um, I mean, there were people who would come in that you were like, okay, this doesn't look like a Neiman Marcus customer, quote unquote, and they would drop serious money on uh, wines. The, the first Sunday I was working, I was working on a Sunday and we had a display. Neiman's was all about displays and making things look pretty. And we'd gotten in 10 six packs of Opus One. And back then Opus was very limited. And so that was a big haul that we had 10 six packs and we had one of them out on display and a guy walks up and he doesn't look anything special. And he's like, hey, I see you got some Opus. I'm like, oh yeah, we did. Would you, would you be interested in some? He's like, well, how much did you get? I'm like 10 six pack. He's like, oh, that's fantastic. I'll take them. And so he bought all 10 six packs. So then Monday morning I'm working and the manager of the store comes down and is like, Adam, my God, we're so glad we hired you. You have such great sales skill and all that. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. I mean, I didn't tell her that, but I'm like, I didn't yeah. do anything. Uh, but, but it was a great learning experience from that point of view too, that, that people are, um, there are plenty of people who care about fine wine, but they're not wandering over to the men's selection or to the Donna Karen stuff. You know, she's not going over there to shop. Clothing just wasn't her thing, but the wine stuff was or Epicure or whatever. And so 
um, it, it was a, a great opportunity there to learn. But I had in my mind at that point in time that I wanted to move out to California and get involved in the wine business and get out here. And um, I visited multiple times and just felt like this was really a place that, that called to me, felt like home in a lot of ways. So decided to move out. Uh, Diana followed shortly thereafter um, and came out here. And despite what I thought, um, all these winemakers and wineries that I had gotten to know who said, come on out, we'll help you find a job. They kind of forgot about who I was in some ways once I got out there and wasn't buying their wine anymore. Mm -hmm. Two people were incredibly helpful though. Steve McCrosty from McCrosty Winery and then a winery that no longer exists, but it was called Livingston in Napa Valley. They made Cabernet. Trent and Diana Moffat. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so Trent is a son, sorry. So it's John Livingston and Diana. His John, wife. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I know them. They were both incredibly helpful in saying, we don't have an opening right now, but here are places you can look. Here are ideas. Here's this, here's that. And they um, were remarkable in that regard to help me out uh, and help me find a job. My first job was at Sterling, though. Actually, I was just working in the tasting room, pouring white Merlot most of the time. But <laughs> How about that? Uh, I quickly became known. Uh, they quickly figured out I knew something about wine, so they would have me do private tours. And I became known as the Gilligan of the tour staff because I would give the three-hour tour. Instead of pouring white Merlot for people, I would give this long, drawn-out tour for VIPs. Um, and, uh, and people seemed to love it. That's so awesome, though. And what a you know, life-changing decision you made. Like you described, it's one thing on theory, but you made like a move across the country. You followed your heart. You followed your mind. Um, rather than thinking about it, you did something about it. So that that's really cool. And you didn't have, you know, any anything that, you know, lined up already. You yeah. just took a chance. $24,000 to my name was how much I had. Wow. And that wouldn't last you in California very long, just yeah. so you guys know. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but it's not. <laughs> not in California pricing. Um, uh it was, it was great, though, um, to, to be out here. And one of the things, I've got three youngish kids, I mean, 21, 16, and 14. And it's so funny with young kids, as a parent, you spend so much time telling them, no, don't do this. It's dangerous. No, don't do that. It's not smart. No, don't do this. Um, going out to California, as I did, was both dangerous and not smart in some ways. And so many things that you could look at. That, um, but it was the time where I didn't have a mortgage. Yeah. No kids, weren't married yet. Mm -hmm. If you're going to take a chance, that's the time to do it. You know how many times I've said that throughout my life? It's just so wonderful to hear you say that. It's true. If you're going to take a chance on yourself, do it before you have all this responsibility that would prevent you from that. Yep. Um, so there you were at Sterling and Diana was coming. Uh, so Diana came out. I got a job. I was applying for other jobs other than just the Sterling one. I ended up becoming um, like tasting room manager and Diana working at Lambert Bridge Winery up in Healdsburg, uh, in Dry Creek Valley there. Yeah, which Healdsburg was a very different place then. Oh, it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it wasn't nearly the place it was it is now. There were some great things about it. A couple of wonderful dive bars. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the Bistro Ralph was like the fancy right. place to go. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was uh, 
and we took over right as Lambert Bridge was reopening, having gone through some ownership changes, and I think it was even a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And um, working there in 1993 into 1994, and we decided that we wanted to try making our own wine. And what we loved to drink was Pinot Noir. So we decided to put a small ad in a publication called Wine Country Classifieds. Um, it still exists online now. It's called WineRecite.com, but it's where people sell grapes, buy grapes, buy equipment, used equipment, barrels, all of that kind of thing. And we put an ad uh, looking for grapes uh, and we visited three different vineyards and finally decided on one in Anderson Valley that we wanted to buy grapes from right across from Hanley Winery. Uh, We called it the Rose Vineyard. It was associated with Christine Woods Winery. And so um, we found they were willing to sell us and this is the way we wanted to buy the grapes, one acre worth of Pinot Noir. So instead of buying by the ton, We had our own set section, our own acreage, and we got to um, go out there and do the farming ourselves. So shoot thinning, pulling, all of that kind of thing. How did you know that? How did you know how to do your own farming? We didn't, um, quite frankly, and we probably um, thinned it too far down in in retrospect. Um, What we knew was that from all that we'd read, and Pinot winemakers like Tom Rocchioli, uh, Bert Williams, people who were being very willing to tell us and talk to us about how they made wine. Um, we And Diana grew up on a farm, and that's an important thing as well. Um, while there are differences in farming grapevines than farming other things, uh, much like, say, tomato plants, that sometimes you need to pluck off some tomatoes so that the others ripen properly. With grapes, you need to remove some of them so that things uh, will ripen evenly. And so we um, followed just things that we had learned, things that we had read, and um, took this down to about 1.47 tons out of, if I remember correctly, out of the, uh, the that acreage, uh, the one acre, uh, brought it in. Uh, we were so lucky on one thing, which was that it was 1994, which was a great- Perfect great year, yes, yeah. classic. Yeah. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.